welcome to another edition of the Toxic American Podcast. I'm your host, Rudy. Rudy with a permit on the Twitter or at Toxic American on Twitter. Uh, also, if you haven't checked out the YouTube channel, which just has gun content right now, please do that. YouTube at Toxic American. Pretty easy to find. I wasn't going to do a podcast today. Um, I basically swore off Twitter for the day, or at least for most of the day. Also been fairly busy doing things. Um, but, obviously here I am doing a podcast. But I wanted to do a 9-11 podcast after listening to at least a, you know, a third of the podcast, the Sean Ryan Show podcast, where he had Mark Geist, a.k.a. Oz, on there. And he is one of the survivors, one of the hardcore dudes from the Benghazi attacks uh, from 9-11. I think that was 2012. So, for some reason, listening to that inspired me to do this today. Also, listening to uh, Heather, literally Heather, on her podcast this morning, everything yesterday this morning. She started off by talking about 9-11 as well. And uh, she and I are pretty much the same age. Uh, I would, I think, hell, I don't know. We, I assume we have different birthdays. I don't really know. But I know we both were born in 1983. That puts us both right in the heart of it for 9-11, being young, but on the verge of adulthood, at least in the eyes of the law. And, uh, excuse me, for me, for her, I would assume, it is definitely a a catastrophic, monumental event that we will never forget, that no one should ever forget. Um, I think it was one of those things, too, when you're 17, 18 years old, it becomes easier to understand not necessarily the why, but it becomes easier to understand the impact upon which this thing is going to have upon you, your family, your country, and the world. Um, When I was 11 or 12, we had the Oklahoma City bombing, and that was a big deal. But that was a, not only was it a horrific event, and it was an hour and a half down the road from uh, where myself and my parents lived, and it was in a building in which my mother had visited numerous times. She knew exactly where it was, how to get there, where to park, all of that stuff. So it was fairly, uh, you know, hits kind of close to home, definitely much more close to home than like New York City and Washington, D.C. do. Um, But it was a domestic thing. It wasn't an international... It wasn't necessarily obvious from, from day one that this was really a going to be a global deal. Now, that doesn't minimize how horrific it was and how many people died and had their lives affected, and it was just as horrific as the 9-11 attacks. It's just that the ripple effect from it was not 
was not going to change the course of world history like 9-11 did. And I, you know, Heather is a smart enough person, very smart person, actually. Um, I would assume she was aware enough as I was aware enough at the time to know this was a, a not just a big deal because it was an attack, but this was a big deal that was going to ripple throughout the globe and for years. Um, so I wanted to start, before I just go off on that tangent, I wanted to start, um, also wanted to point out, Mark Osgeist was there, Benghazi, uh, when it went down. Uh, he got tore up pretty bad. He's the redheaded guy in the movie, let me put it that way, which the movie 13 Hours with John Krasinski uh, is a fantastic movie. It's based on the book Eyes on Target by Scott McEwen and Richard Miniter, uh, who are just two authors. The, those guys were not there, but they interviewed basically all anyone that they could. And the press for the movie included a lot of, if not all four of the dudes that are portrayed in the movie, and they basically gave it their seal of approval, if you will, uh, no pun intended, but still kind of ironic. Uh, it's a great book. I am not one of those people who will tell you that the book is much better than the movie unless it is completely better, like the movie just drops the ball, like Lone Survivor movie just dropped the ball based on the book. Um, you should do both. You should get the book because it's one of those I don't necessarily like to read uh, for long periods of time. And it was one of those I couldn't put it down. I just, I basically had to finish it and, you know, I didn't finish it in a day, but I had to get back to it as quick as I could. So it's a great book. The movie's great. Um, one of the better action movies I'll ever see as well. So, but getting back into what I wanted to cover. So I wanted to go over the timeline of what happened um, on 9-11. And the timeline I'm gonna read to you is from the millercenter.org. I don't really know anything about the Miller Center. Uh, they're attached to the University of Virginia in some aspect, some way. They claim to be partisan free and whatnot. I don't know. Doesn't necessarily matter when you're talking about a timeline like this. Um, I'm not going to get into any sort of conspiracy theories or things of that nature because the things that happened on 9-11 happened. Just remember that. Lives were affected. People were dead. They happened. Okay? So, September the 11th, 2001. <clears throat> All of these times are going to be on the Eastern Standard Time. At 5.45 a.m., Mohammed Atta and Abdul Aziz Al-Ormari, two of the intended hijackers, passed through security at the Portland International Jetport in Maine. They board a commuter flight to Boston's Logan International Airport. They then board American Airlines Flight 11. At 7.59 a.m., Flight 11 takes off from Boston, headed for Los Angeles, California. There are 76 passengers, 11 crew members, and five, a total of five hijackers on board. So, Mohammed Atta and Abdulaziz Al-Omari met up with three fellow hijackers on Flight 11. At 8.15 a.m., United Airlines Flight 175 
takes off from Boston, also headed for Los Angeles. There are 51 passengers, nine crew members, and also a total of five hijackers on board. <clears throat> At 8.19 a.m., a flight attendant on flight number 11, that's the first flight that took off, Betty Ann Ong, O-N-G, I hope I said that right, Betty Ann, and to your loved ones, if you're hearing this, Betty Ann Ong alerts ground personnel that a hijacking is underway and that the cockpit is unreachable. 8.20 in the a.m., American, American Airlines flight number 77 takes off from Dulles Airport outside of Washington, D.C., headed for, again, Los Angeles. There are 53 passengers, six crew, and five hijackers. 8.24 a.m., Mohammed Atta, a hijacker on flight 11, unintentionally alerts air controllers in Boston to the attack. He meant to press the button that allowed him to talk to the passengers on his flight. Must have taught you what that button did on the uh, landing sequence. <clears throat> At 8.37 a.m., after hearing the broadcast from Atta on Flight 11, Bostic Air Traffic Control alerts the United States Air Force's Northeast Defense Sector, who then mobilized the Air National Guard to follow the plane. 8.42 a.m., United Flight 93 takes off from New York, New Jersey. After a delay due to routine traffic, it was headed for San Francisco, California. There are 33 passengers, seven crew, and four hijackers on board. At 8.46 a.m., flight number 11 crashes into World Trade Center's North Tower. All passengers aboard are instantly killed, and, empl and employees of the World Trade Center are trapped above the 91st floor. Can only imagine what they thought. 17 minutes later at 9.03 a.m., Flight 175 crashes into the World Trade Center's South Tower. All passengers aboard are killed instantly, and so are an unknown number of people in the tower. <clears throat> at 9.05 a.m., President George W. Bush, in an elementary school classroom in Florida, is informed about the hit on the second tower. I wasn't necessarily going to read this, but uh, it, it seems important. His chief of staff, Andrew Card, whispers the chilling news into the president's ear. Uh, I think we all remember this footage of him sitting there with the children, the teacher, they're reading a book. Uh, Mr. Card comes up and whispers something into Bush's ear. Um, you can tell it's, it, he wasn't saying, hey, your hair looks nice today. You can tell it's some... Uh, Bush doesn't have a very good poker face, let's, let's put it that way. I don't know that he was trying to have one necessarily, but he didn't have one. But <clears throat> So he whispers this in President Bush's ear. Bush later wrote about the response, quote, I made the decision not to jump up immediately and leave the classroom. I didn't want to rattle the kids. I wanted to project a sense of calm. I had been in enough crises to know that the first thing the leader has to do is to project calm. I don't disagree with him. At 9.28 a.m., hijackers attack on Flight 93. At 9.37 a.m., Flight 77 crashes into the Pentagon. All passengers aboard are instantly killed, and so are 125 civilian and military personnel inside the Pentagon building. 
9.45 a.m., United States airspace is shut down under Operation Yellow Ribbon. All civilian aircraft are ordered to land at the nearest airport. At 9.55 a.m., Air Force One with President George W. Bush aboard takes off from Florida. It's a pretty good time. 50 minutes later, he finally takes off. Anyway, 9.57 a.m., passengers aboard Flight 93 begin to run up toward the cockpit. Jara, the pilot, begins to roll the plane back and forth in an attempt to destabilize the revolt. 9.59 a.m., the South Tower of the World Trade Center collapses. 10.02 a.m., Flight 93 plows into an empty field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Although its ultimate target is unknown, it was likely heading for either the White House or the United States Capitol. At 10.18 a.m., President Bush authorizes any non-grounded planes to be shot down. At the time, at that time, the four hijacked planes had already crashed, but the president's team was operating under the impression that Flight 93 was still in the air. At 10.28 a.m., the North Tower of the World Trade Center collapses. It's interesting to note um, that even if there were planes scrambled all over once the first plane hit the first tower, none of those planes, none of those fighter jets made it to any hijacked plane before they were ultimately crashed. But by some of those pilots' interviews that I've seen with them, all they would have been was the world's best witness, as one of them put it. They were not going to be shooting down airplanes, not until President Bush gave that order at 10.18 a.m. All planes had already hit. No one was shooting anything down. Um, I, I, I think it's interesting to note that because in a post-9-11 world, everything gets... You know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, today, I would assume that if they're able to get there in time, they're probably going to have to shoot down a commercial airliner, and I don't wish that upon any pilot, any service member, any president, or especially anyone aboard those planes. But it would happen probably this day, right now, as we sit here on 9-11, 2023. Or if you're listening to this the next day on 9-12-2023. So that's the sequence of events um, where I was at the time. I was still in high school. I was 17 years old. Um, I was about a month and a half, almost two months away from turning 18. I'm sure my parents were very, very uh, worried about my future. I'm sure they were already slightly worried about my future of graduating high school and things of that nature. Um, but now, obviously, the United States is probably going to war. We're not sure who it's with, but we're going to war with someone. This was very coordinated. This was very obvious. Um, this was not a guy in a rider truck parked out front or what have you. This was not some uh, odd folks 
holed up in a building outside of Waco, Texas. This, this was obviously coordinated and it had outside funding and coordination. Um, so I was in high school, um, looking back, these planes were hitting, I'm an hour behind time-wise where I'm at here in Oklahoma. So <clears throat> when the first plane hit at basically would have been 7.46 a.m. my time, I would have been driving to school, possibly had just woken up. That was my style, uh, being a senior in high school. And uh, I do remember going from my first period socio sociology class just as it was about to let out, I remember our uh, school counselor, who was about as worthless as uh, tits on a boar hog, came by the classroom and said, a plane just hit the World Trade Center. And all of us thought, you could tell, or at least I could tell, that she was, had a very, very concerned look on her face. Um, she was a, a fairly jovial lady most of the time and would be smiling and whatnot. She wasn't like a downer, but she just had a look about her and she said, a plane just hit the World Trade Center. And I think most of us thought like some little Cessna, you know, some pilot who was way out of his league crashing to the side. That's what I thought. I thought it was some little Cessna and you're going to have the fatality of the people aboard. And if someone was pressed up against the window when he hit it, maybe he got them. We hadn't yet known because you didn't have, there were cell phones, but they were the Nokia green phones and text messaging was like the new hot thing. There were no smartphones. The internet is in its infancy. Uh, you're still relying on literally television news to tell you what's going on. And no one's sitting by a television in a school. It's just not a thing. Um, and so this is basically word of mouth. Someone calls someone or someone had come to the school who had seen it and had said something. And so by the time I get to my second period class, I think we're 15, 20 minutes. No, we had a full second period. If I remember right, acting as if, you know, it was still just a Cessna. And then my third period class is the same, was the same teacher. And by that time, we had realized another plane had hit another tower. And that's when it all got really real at that time. You have to understand, for those of us that were coherent, alive and coherent at the time, the biggest worry we had had in our lives to that point was Y2K. And hopefully I have a young enough audience or some members are young enough to remember or not remember Y2K. Y2K was this thing that because everything had become so computerized, the power grid, um, banking, other things, that the code didn't go to 2001 or 2000. 
Yes, that's what it was. It didn't recognize 2000 because they just used six digits, total four digits or two digits for the month, day, and the year. So you would have a date that was, you know, 9-11-09-11-99. And when it flipped over to 2000, they were afraid that it was going to think it was 1900 and for some reason shut down. I don't know. If you watch the movie Office Space, which is a great movie, that's kind of the premise, or at least the setup for the background of the characters of that movie, for three of them, that they're the ones like updating the code. I don't know how how accurate all of that was, but it was a thing, and it was talked about for years, and then on New Year's Eve, or New Year, yes, New Year's Eve of uh, the year 1999, we were all pretty sure that it wasn't going to fail, but we weren't 100% sure. Spoiler alert, it didn't fail. But that was like the biggest thing ever. Like, oh my God, the power might go out. And then 9-11 happens. Um, I looked back at some things that were popular in 2001. Man, is it, it's kind of sad and kind of funny all at the same time. So like pulp, pulp, pop culture things that were going on in 2001. Um, first of all, President Bush had just taken office that January. We were technically in a recession at that point. But, uh, so here's the popular movies of the time. Year 2001 witnessed two highest worldwide gross earnings movies. Earning movies. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, which made $978 million worldwide. And Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Never seen, uh, the Harry, never seen one Harry Potter film. Tried to get through Lord of the Rings, kept falling asleep. Don't understand it. It's awful. A Beautiful Mind came out with Russell Crowe, which is a pretty good movie. Uh, the movie that enthralled me and my friends at the time was The Fast and Furious, which was great. I saw it opening night on the theater twice. Yep. Not going to apologize about that. Um, let's see. Ocean's Eleven came out. Another great movie. Pearl Harbor came out with Ben Affleck and Josh Hartnett. It's another good movie. People panned it, but that movie's really good. Great action scenes in that. Um, what's his name? He just passed away. Is in it with a small role, and he's great as well. It's like the I don't know what he is. I guess he's like the mechanic of all the planes and starts firing a shotgun. I don't. Uh, anyway, that's a good movie care what anyone says. And Shrek came out. Shrek! Think about that when young ones. This is where it started to hit home. The iPod came out. That means Napster's dead. LimeWire's raging. We're all burning CDs. And then here comes the iPod. 
not only did the iPod come out, they launched the iPod. Apple opened its first two stores in Virginia and South Southern California. There were no Apple stores prior to 2001, folks. The Xbox launched in 2001. Actually, it launched after September 11th in November. And then Xbox Live came the next year. Wikipedia launched 2001. Wikipedia. Do you do you young folks not under are you are you guys understanding now like if we had to know something if we had to find out an answer about something we had to fucking know a guy. And then not only do we have to know that guy we then had to call him. And then hopefully he was there and picked up otherwise we just had to leave a, a message on his machine and hope he called back and then hopefully when he called back we were there to answer the phone. There was no text him, and then he texts us back. There was no Google. There was no just look it up on Wikipedia or just, you know, look it up on the interwebs. Like, it didn't really, that wasn't a thing. Uh, the Lakers still had Kobe and Shaq getting together, playing games. They actually defended their title in 2001. I mean... <laughs> This one was funny, too. Fear Factor debuted. <laughs> Fear Factor. AOL gets bought by Warner Brothers, so AOL is dead. It's over. It's gone. Gone. The rise and fall of AOL. So that was uh, really weird to look at some of those things. And I remember distinctly right after September 11th happened, they published this in the newspaper again there you go you had to get your news from the damn newspaper clear channel which is now iHeartRadio, published a list of songs that were deemed lyrically what was the term that they used let's see lyrically questionable and so they were basically banned from the radio uh, there was a hundred total of 164 songs, and you have to understand too. If you wanted to listen to music, you went to the radio. Period. Again, you could try to download a song. A download would take of a full song at that time, unless you were in a specific area that had some crazy high-speed internet. A song downloading it would take you somewhere in the neighborhood from five to ten hours, depending on how long that song was. So this idea of like, you're just gonna you know download 100 songs today, bullshit. And you would ruin the computer after time, as well as some of us uh, found out, and our parents may or may not know exactly how that happened to this day, but uh, if they're listening, I just outed all of you. You're welcome. So Clear, Can Clear Channel Communications operate 1,100 plus radio stations. So they decide 164 songs, no more playing them. I think eventually they reinstated them, but they basically just said no. It does say that some 
DJs chose to play these songs. I don't remember them being played. That could very well have happened, but uh, a lot of them, I guess, kind of make sense. Uh, to me, you, you just, I don't know. You probably, I, I don't know. I don't know. It, it's a weird one. It wasn't government mandated, so that's okay. Um, the problem with it is, is that there really is not an alternative. There were at least one radio station in the Tulsa area that was a clear channel communication station, um, but the other one wasn't. But some of them went along with it as well. I don't quite understand it, but I had them all on CD. Still do. Yes, my old man ass still has them on CD. But So that was part of some of the days after hysteria as well. Now, anyone who's listening to this podcast understands that we spent 20 years, give or take, in Afghanistan. Uh, we understand that we are no longer in Afghanistan. The pullout was horrifically atrocious. Uh, we never accomplished our end goal, unless that goal was just to put one in uh, Osama bin Laden's head. Well, and I guess we doubled it up because I think uh, Rob O'Neill put two in his dome. I don't know what we accomplished because Al-Qaeda and the Taliban are not only still a thing, uh, but the Taliban has full control of Afghanistan right now, like they did on September 11th, 2001. A lot of blood has been shed. A lot of people are never coming back because they paid the ultimate sacrifice over there. It led to us invading Iraq in, I believe, 2003. That one never really made sense. Didn't make sense at the time. I didn't really understand why we were going into Iraq. The case never really was made to me. Uh, even Let's say, without using hindsight, the WMD case that was made, that, you know, Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. Well, he had them the whole time. You know, allegedly, it would appear that he gassed the Kurds. So we knew he had them. Uh, we also knew that the Israelis uh, blew the top off of his nuclear site, that he was trying to make nuclear weapons, which we were really, 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 really mad about at the time. Um, not only did the Israelis do that just on their own, but they did it with a uh, fresh new load of uh, American F-16s. Well, I guess they were Israeli F-16s, but they had just basically acquired them from us. And that was their first mission was to go and uh, blow that up. Iraq was an ally of ours at the time in the 80s because he opposed Iran. Um, so there was a joke on Chappelle's show of, I forget the exact setup, but it was a woman asks a guy who's playing like a... a a Nostradamus type character. And she asked the question, how does President Bush know that Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction? And his answer, he has the receipt. Okay. So, you know, if that was 
If anyone fell for that predicate of we have to go over there because he has weapons of mass destruction, uh, sorry, I never fell for that one. We sold them to him. I don't know what he did with them. Uh, maybe he sold them, you know, fenced them. But the fact of the matter is he was not training Al-Qaeda because they would have been a challenge to his power, being that they are not of the same uh, lineage, if you will. And the good thing about dictators, if there is a good thing, any challenge to their power is met with the iron fist. So having this group that has outside financing, like an Al-Qaeda, that's their training, that's their recruiting, has weapons, Mm, that ain't going to fly with the old dic dictator. Saddam's not going to like that. That's a threat to your power. You're going to get rid of him. So, without doing two hours on the Iraq war, I'm sure there's a lot of veterans looking back going, what the hell was it all for? And I'm sure 9-11 is a really tough day because I'm sure there's a, a boatload of them. I knew guys and... I almost did it myself if I hadn't had a, at the time, what seemed like a promising college football career that I, or college scholarship based on football, uh, I might have done it as well. But I had buddies that went and signed up because of 9-11. And I'm, I know they're not alone. I know there's people that re-enlisted because of 9-11. I know there's people that changed their MOS or changed their, uh, branch because of 9-11 because they wanted to take the fight to the enemy in Afghanistan and that is a righteous thing as you can do I mean one of the most famous instances of that is Pat Tillman former Arizona Cardinal gave up a football contract millions of dollars to go uh, take the fight to the enemy and so knowing that and knowing some of those guys I'm sure this is a very tough day because you did the best thing you could do for your country at the time, and that was sign up to give the ultimate sacrifice. And those of you that made it, hats off to you. Those of you that signed up, hats off to you. You're better men than me. Um, but I'm sure you think about the guys that did the same thing that you did in the same position that aren't here today, that didn't make it, that paid the ultimate sacrifice or missing limbs, or a limb, or have some severe PTSD, or have shrapnel in you, or whatever it is, or, you know, maybe you didn't even see combat, but you were over there, and you got to see them come back, torn up. Some of them didn't come back. Some of them couldn't be saved. Um, I'm sure this is a tough day, but it shouldn't be a tough day. And I'll tell you why it shouldn't be a tough day. Because you're not politicians. You're not the decision makers. You're not the gutless ones who wear a uniform, who wear all of the brass, and who sit before Congress or the president or whomever, and they lie. They know how we could have won Afghanistan. They know exactly what it would have taken to win Afghanistan. They were either too gutless to say it, too gutless to do it, or too gutless to not get that job afterward. 
on a board of a private company or they were too gutless to say it because they were chasing all that valor that they could put on their chest. They wanted the oak cluster or the, the stripe or the whatever. They wanted the extra little thing on their uniform. But they have to live with being a coward. They have to live with being gutless. They have to live with the decisions they made that are not honorable, that are dishonorable. Those of you that fought valiantly, those of you that went downrange, those of you that went over there and came back, you're not gutless. You're not a coward. You did everything that was asked of you. You did more than was asked of you, in my opinion. You gave up some of the best years of your life to take the fight to the enemy because you were truly patriotic. You wanted to do the right thing. You did the right thing. You served your country and you served it well. I, I really don't like when I hear political pundits really just bash how we spent 20 years over there for nothing. We just wasted 20 years over there. I don't see that at all. That's like saying, you know, you dated someone for 10 years and instead of breaking it off with them, you put in another 10 years knowing it's not going to work. We put in 20 years over there. We shouldn't have needed 20 years to be over there. I don't know what the time frame should have been. I do know that that was a quote-unquote winnable war. But there's no money in the cure and there's no money in the W. We can say what we want about President Trump, former President Trump, possibly future President Trump. But getting out of Afghanistan and setting it up so we would leave was the right move because if you don't have the leadership with the balls, with the valor to do what has to be done, they can't even say it out loud to someone who matters. They're too busy trying to get a job. And if that's the assessment that Trump made or his people made that all we're doing is just pumping treasure and lives into this hellhole, and they're never going to get it done. Well, if I'm him, that leaves me with one choice. Let's get the hell out of there. Then their horrible decisions and their lack of courage and knowledge and the fools who are in charge. Well, at least the check stops and the dying stops. Might not be the best decision. It's not the decision that plays well for a, a morale standpoint. But I'm here to tell you, you guys didn't fail anything. You were failed. You guys are some of the best people I've ever met in my entire life. I've been able to meet some veterans. I know some veterans personally. Yeah, I'm sure you guys got your sets of problems and your issues and all that. I get it, man. I, I get it. No, that's a lie. I don't get it. I've never done it. But I understand that you have those problems. There's nothing that can't be overcome. 
There's nothing that can't be talked about. There's no, no problem that cannot be fixed, especially a mental issue, mental problem. If you're having trouble mentally, <clears throat> you know, you lose an arm. Okay, well, it's probably not going to grow back, boys. But if your brain's damaged, diet, exercise, talk, good habits, things of that nature, just get back up on that horse and start pedaling. Like, I mean, my DMs on my Twitter are open to anyone. Um, I've never closed them. I don't have them blocked off to just people I follow or that follow me or, or anything like that. Which there's a lot of porn bots that pop up. I'm not gonna lie. Apparently they got all the same picture. Central casting Asian gal. Send me a DM. I'm not gonna judge you. I'm not gonna post it. I'm. I'll, I will respond. I've gotten quite a few DMs just from this little podcast that I've started doing here in the back room of my house. Um, I'm not a trained professional, you know, in a, a head doctor or, you know, a shrink or anything, but that's probably better. At least you can talk about random shit. I'll try to probably try to divert you off of whatever you're thinking about. I'll try to make you laugh. You know, no topic is too taboo for me. So you guys didn't fail. Not at all. You took the fight to the enemy. You went there. You did it. You did your job. You got out. You saved as many guys as you could. You came back. You have a particular set of skills. Hey, you're all fucking awesome and heroic in my eyes. In a lot of other people's eyes. You know, so I'm, I can imagine that this is a tough day, a tough week, tough time of year for a lot of you guys. But your country loves you. Your country has your back. Your president might be brain dead, but you guys aren't. You guys are a million times the man that that fool ever was. Ever was. So I'd like to go out on that positive note that even after the 20 years, we didn't lose, we just stopped trying. We didn't lose, we just understood that it was enough. Even after 20 years of pumping all that money in there, didn't bring us down. After 20 years, the Taliban's still a bunch of goat fuckers who can't read. Carrying around AKs that were made before any of us were born. They're still pieces of shit. But you boys are still the best. I want you guys who didn't serve to, to think about some of the veterans you may know personally or on social media. Maybe reach out and just say, hey, thanks. Maybe just, you know, post something patriotic in there. Maybe tag them in it. And not just today. Do it a week from now, two weeks from now, three weeks from now, a year from now, two years from now. Keep doing it. Do it all the time. Think about it. Think about doing it more. Not just a day like today.
a weird day even for me to think about some of the things back then and some of the things afterwards and all of that. Thank you guys for listening. I'll catch you all next time.